look at Romans chapter 8 today by way of Luke chapter 15. So if you want to turn there. Jesus uh, used to spend time with rather unsavory people. He spoke with sinners. He ate meals with them in their own homes, which godly people didn't do in his day. Some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day found that very reprehensible, that sort of behavior. And they started to even accuse him of being, well, because he associated with people that were of low character, that maybe he had low character himself. To explain what he was doing, Jesus told three stories. Each story is about something lost and then found. And first he tells about lost sheep. Now this is a very famous story. I'm not familiar to anybody that's been around the Bible very much. There's the shepherd who leaves 99 safe sheep and he labors to find one sheep that had gotten separated from the flock. And he finds the sheep and he rejoices. In fact, he wants to celebrate. And Jesus wants us to understand that he is discussing heaven's perspective on sinful people when they repent. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 15, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So the reality is heaven rejoices when just one sinner repents. Then he tells a story about a woman who has ten coins. And she loses one, which is a tenth of all that she has. It's a big deal. And she turns the house inside out, upside down, to find the coin. And finally, there it is. And her heart just leaps with joy, and she wants to call all of her friends over and celebrate. And he says in verse 10, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So angels rejoice when a human being repents from their sin and turns to God. They're just delighted. And then to personalize the story even more, Jesus tells the story of a lost son. In verse 11, he says, There's a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, how many parents have had to witness a situation like this happen to their own children? Many, many, many. The prodigal son. This scenario happens over and over again, generation after generation, because it's the nature of young people to disregard wisdom and the experiences of the past. Some of them just have to find out the hard way, as we put it. Someone called me recently whose situation is somewhat like this, a child going off in the wrong path to a distant country, if you will, at least in her heart. Stubbornly so, and, and the person asked me, what do you think the prodigal's father prayed? How did he pray for his wayward son? That was the question, because obviously this person wanted to pray for their own child in this way. But the story doesn't tell us that. And there's a reason. Because more than the prodigal son, the central figure of the story really is the father. And Jesus wants us to see him because the father is God by way of analogy. So he's not praying 
That's not the issue here. It's what he's praying. It's what his heart is toward the wayward son. The story is a story to teach us about God. And when we look at this father, we see the heart of God towards sinful people. And if you focus your attention on the father, you will learn some very comforting truths about what God is like. Jesus has explained in each of the stories so far that the lost item, the sheep or the coin, represents a sinner. And finding the item represents repentance. Well, in the third story, we actually see the lost one, because now the story is about a human being, go through the process of repentance. And that's very helpful. Verse 14, it says, When he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. So he goes with a lot of money, and he loses it all, living like a, a fool just on his pleasures. And then a famine hits the country, and of course, everybody's out of work. He can't earn any more money. There's, this is a terrible situation. And he began to be in need. Verse 15, he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, a Jew feeding swine is like not your choice job. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. The swine had more food than he had. And no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me as one of your hired men. So repentance here, by Jesus' own definition in telling the story, is a recognition, first of all, that he blew it. An awareness of his miserable condition. At verse 17, it says he came to his senses. He'd been living senselessly, like a fool, too long. And here you also see genuine humility, which is another necessary part of repentance. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the assumption here is that this is really where his heart is. He's not, hey, what, what, what can I say to dad to get him to support me? No, he really feels this. He realizes he came to his senses. Because he is no longer worthy to be called his son. He was impatient for material things. He wanted to escape from the presence and the moral influence of his family. He was irresponsible and he fell into an immoral lifestyle. He's not worthy, and he knows he's not worthy. Just as anyone who comes to God must genuinely see their own unworthiness. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that ever was ever preached, begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The prodigal son was poor in spirit in exactly the way that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He saw his own unworthiness. Poverty stricken. That word Jesus used means poverty stricken. To be poor in spirit is to be utterly destitute spiritually and know it. And those people are the ones who receive the kingdom of heaven. Now the Greek word for repent, the New Testament word, I don't usually like to say Greek words, but it's sort of an interesting word. Metanoia. It means to change the mind. Nous the mind. Noia. Biblically, repent means to change your mind about you and to change your mind about the Father, God. That's what this young man's going through. He's changed his mind about himself. He saw himself as a sinner. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. He saw himself as a fool. 
And he saw himself as an ingrate who doesn't deserve anything more than to be a servant. Even that would be a gracious act. And he changed his mind about his father. Well, you know, dad wasn't such a bad guy after all. Thinking about it. And what he does, and this is important, he plans to return to the father in total humility. His plan is to confess his sin and his unworthiness, and he will not expect sonship. He will only ask humbly to be one of his father's servants, one of his hired men. And at this point, the parable starts to shift to the home front. Verse 20, it says, He got up and came to his father, and then then we get it from the father's perspective. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. wonder if he'd been looking every day down the road and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible on the love of God. The father sees the son at a distance, way down the road, coming home. That familiar walk, there's something, that's him. And he just runs, very undignified. Runs, the Greek says, he fell on his neck, that's the Greek word, embraced him, and then it it says kissed him, and that's present tense, he kissed him over and over and over again. Just hanging on his son and kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. How many human fathers might let pride tempt them to hold off and wait for him to make the long walk and maybe even stand there and let his son see him as he walks the long way home? Well, let's see what this young man has to say for himself. He made his bed. Let's let him lie in it a little longer. He's got a lot of explaining to do. But God is not a father like that. Jesus says he runs and embraces his lost son even before a word is spoken. And the son obviously is overwhelmed. And and he starts to say his speech, verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before another word gets out of his mouth, the father says, none of that. He's not even listening. Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, verse 22, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Joy, sheer joy, delight, happiness. A time for celebration. As the song says, God is an awesome God. Holy, righteous, terrible in his judgments, hating evil. Hebrews 10.31 reminds us that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But that reality, and that's all true, that aspect of God's nature is addressed to the unrepentant. Those who love their sin and cling to their sin and won't come home. But just turn Just turn and decide to go back. Just cease from straying and start turning towards home. And he's running out to meet you. And dad says it's a time for celebration. Get out the best robe, a proof of his acceptance, and get the ring, a sign of sonship, and kill the fatted calf reserved for special feasts and celebrations. Kill it. My son has come home. 
Verse 24 says, The Son of Mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And he began to be merry. Now, turn to Romans chapter 8. Last week we started looking at this one aspect of salvation known as adoption. When a sinner is saved by God, all sorts of things happen. The sinner is declared righteous by God, we've seen earlier in Romans. The sinner is set apart for God's purpose, sanctification. The sinner is joined to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, the union with Christ. The Spirit of God comes to reside in the believer. The sinner is given new life, a spiritual birth called regeneration, which means he has a new heart and he has new affections and he actually loves God. And God becomes real to him and he loves the things of God. And we learn in Romans 8, verse 14 and following that the saved sinner is made a child of God, adopted into God's family. God then becomes a father to the redeemed, a father of such a kind that Jesus described in the parable in Luke 15, a compassionate, affectionate, emotional father, a father who runs, a father who embraces and kisses and throws a party to celebrate the child's return. Chapter 8, verse 14, it says, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And last week we talked about that term, Abba, you know, the Jewish Talmud says that at the time to wean a child, when a child is weaned, is when he can say Abba, which means daddy, and Ima, which means mommy. That's how you know it's time to do the weaning process. Daddy and mommy. Abba, Father. This is the address to God that Jesus used in prayer. And he did this at a time when the Jews were moving very far away from any mention of God as a father or any mention of God in any kind of personal terms at all in public speech or prayer. In fact, that was one of the Pharisees' little man-made rules. It was designed as one of their protection, their hedges against blasphemy or taking God's name in vain. If you never said God's name, guess what? They felt like you would never take it in vain, right? If you never mentioned him. So they'd use all kinds of other kind of words as substitutes for God's name so they would never have to mention his name. And here's Jesus saying, Abba, Dad, in prayer publicly. And they just found that very offensive. Abba would have seen entirely, as an entirely too familiar way to address the Lord. But that's the word Jesus used and it's the word he modeled for his disciples to use. And it's the word or the idea that the Spirit draws forth from our hearts, Paul says. Verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba. The Holy Spirit just draws that from us, that attitude towards God that he's our dear, precious daddy, father. So the spirit of adoption is the disposition of the heart to see God on intimate terms, to feel toward him as a child feels towards dad, to be on the closest familial terms with him. It's interesting to hear how people talk about God. You know, I, I think the most amusing one is the big man upstairs. Ever, big guys like to talk about God that way, guys that are kind of gruff and outdoorsmen types, you know. Yeah, I'd like to talk to the big man upstairs now and then, you know, that kind of guy, you know. I just love that one. 
But what kind of image does that conjure up? The big man upstairs. <laughs> and who is that guy living in the second floor, you know? That seems a long way from dad to me. We have been, if we have Christ, literally, truly adopted into God's family. Jesus, of course, is uniquely the Son of God. He's called the Son of God because He is God, God the Son. He shares the same divine nature as the Father. The New Testament says, In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, when you look at Wayne, you don't say, All the... F no, you don't even start there. <laughs> Speck of deity... Oh. Because I'm not a son of God, I'm not the son of God in any way, shape, or form, nor is any other human being other than the only begotten son of God, Jesus Christ. But any of us who are in Christ are adopted sons, having a human nature, but adopted into the divine family. Whereas we can call God Father because Christ calls him that, and we are in him. So all that God is... Christ is in all the divine perfections and powers, but over and over again, Jesus tells those who belong to him that we should regard God as Father even as he does. And Paul explains why we can do this. Though we're not sons by nature, we are sons by adoption. An adopted child has all the privileges of a true child, which primarily means, I think spiritually, access. We have access to the Father on intimate terms. That's why you don't have to go through a priest to talk to God. You don't have to call Jesus' mom. You don't have to do anything like that to go to your Father, your Abba. Because just like that man ran out of his house down to greet his son, God is waiting eagerly to be in fellowship with you. He's not some distant deity that has to be appeased. So we can be assured of a hearing with our God. God will listen to us. Not as a deity on a mountain, but as a father close at hand. So don't keep God at a distance when he desires to be close. You know the old saying, if God seems far away, guess who moved? It was you, not him. The Holy Spirit himself puts into your heart the confidence of your standing as a child with God. That's what Paul's describing here. So many things about the Christian life are objective. You know, there are truths that have nothing to do with how I feel or the mood I'm in or impressions that I have and that is much of the strength of our faith that it has so much objective reality to it. The Bible is not a dream or a good thought or, or a fairy story. It's, it's history. And it can be verified or disproven by objective examination. And that's an important thing. Christ rose from the dead in history, not in faith's wish or some spiritual sense or anything like that. He either did or he didn't. And when Paul says he did and says we're idiots to be Christians if he didn't, I like that. That's very straightforward and honest. That's the way I want my religion. <laughs> If he didn't rise bodily from the tomb, the New Testament says the whole thing's a crock. Go home and enjoy your Sunday mornings. Mow the grass or something. Just lays it on the line. All or nothing. There's no games. There's no pretending. There's no mystical stuff. It's all the opposite of this subjective, touchy-feely, modern religious nonsense which dares to use the word truth. 
well, you've got your truth and I've got my truth. That's not truth at all. That's the wrong word. Still, though, with all that strength and all that weight of objective truth, which is true for all people at all times, because it's just reality, in addition to that, there is a subjective element in Christianity, things that are internal and things that are matters of the heart. And this is one of them. One of these things is the inner awareness of our adoption. Because, you know, when you become a Christian, there isn't like a, a, a certificate given to you. Adopted child of God. Now, I could make you up one, but that wouldn't prove anything. And you don't get stamped on the head and it says, Adopted child of God, you know, on your head. But there's an awareness a true awareness that is granted by the Holy Spirit to your spirit that nobody can see and only you are aware of for yourself. And that's what he means in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's a wonderful, subjective, but wonderful and powerful truth. Now that, because it's subjective, it's not... You have to be careful when you even talk about it because a person could say, oh, yeah, I have that subjective feeling and not, ha not be a Christian. Or a person could be a real Christian and not feel that because of a lot of other things in life. You know, you can get so worn down or have physical conditions that just make you feel depressed or not like a child of God today or something like that. I mean, that can happen. That's not what we're talking about. But there is, for the genuine Christian, a witness of the Spirit to the spirit of the person, the Christian, that they are indeed a child of God. How can you know that you're a Christian? Well, there's those objective factors. The New Testament lists things that define a Christian, and I can look at that list, and I can measure myself by them. I can say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe he is God the Son. I believe he's the Messiah, the Lord, who will one day reign upon the earth. I have agreed with him that I'm a sinner worthy of death and that I need his salvation. And I acknowledge that he's my Lord and my sovereign. I can look down that objective list and say, I believe all those things, I confess all those things, I agree with all those things. That makes me a Christian. And that's important to do that. All of that stuff identifies me as a Christian based on the Bible's own description. But inside me, how do I know that I'm a child of God? Well, you know what? Since the day I became a Christian, something inside me just tells me that I am. And that something has got to be what he's talking about here in verse 16. It's just God's spirit to my spirit. There's an unexplainable confidence that he loves me, that he has received me, and will see me through life until I'm home with him. And when I look at my life and I say, but I just totally don't measure up. I'm unworthy, Father. He's running out there to assure me that as unworthy as I am, because repentance is in my heart, that I'm accepted. And that's true for every genuine Christian. They should have that feeling, that experience. That is the subjective work of the Spirit, the inner witness, spirit to spirit. Now, there's another whole dimension to adoption, and that is the right to inherit. When you're an adopted child, you have certain inheritance privileges. The language of verse 17 is really quite remarkable if you think about it. If children, heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him so what Christ the only begotten son the one and only God in human flesh 
God and Son of God by divine nature, what he receives from the Father, his adopted children share in too. And that just blows me away. That's just like a little too amazing. Can it be true? Look at his language. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. And the key idea of what we share in, from what I get from verse 17, is glory. Because at the very last it says, in order that we may be glorified with him. And right away that makes me think of John's gospel and Jesus giving the high priestly prayer, as it's called in John chapter 17. The great long prayer he gave at the Last Supper for his disciples. Not only for them, but all that would come to believe through them, which means us too. And he says in that prayer, John 17, verse 3, he says, this is eternal life. Praying to God, Jesus says, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He says, I glorified thee, Father, on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do, and now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So he knows that in his death and in his resurrection, he is going to be glorified as a divine being as he was in eternity. God the Son. And he'll set aside all of that condescension that he, when he took humanity to himself and had to live life down here. And then a few verses down, he prays this. And listen really carefully. He says, As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Talking about the disciples. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart that they themselves also might be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, the twelve, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may all also be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. It's incredible stuff. There is such an intimate union pictured here between Christ and his people that indeed there is a wonderful sharing from Christ to the disciples, all of his disciples, of his own glory. It's just remarkable. And of course the center of all this blessing is that line I think in verse 24 of John 17, Father I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am just overwhelming. Being with Jesus is the longing of every Christian heart. And it's guaranteed by his own prayer. In the early chapters of the book of Revelation, there are several amazing statements that appear in which Christ's disciples are actually pictured in sharing this inheritance of his, that he wins by his own obedience and his fulfillment of his role as the Messiah. Most of these appear right away in the letters to the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. They're just amazing promises. 
made to those who, if you've ever read those chapters, he has, there's seven churches, he writes seven letters to them, and to each one he talks about those who overcome. Those are the genuine Christians that last to the end. He says, those who overcome, get this, those who overcome receive this. And several of these point to this inheritance idea. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, sounds like a description of the Messiah's authority, but here the Messiah himself actually includes the church. He says, Revelation 2.26, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Now, anytime you read in the Old Testament about rods of iron and ruling over the earth and shattering nations like bits of pottery and stuff like that, it's always talking about the Messiah. Always. And here, the Messiah himself is saying, they're going to share in that with me. A permanent residence in the holy city is guaranteed in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So this new name that he gets, he shares with his own. Interesting. Kind of mystical, a little bit hard to follow there. What's he mean? What name? What's he talking about? We don't know. But we share in it. A remarkable promise is made in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's kind of staggering to the imagination what he must be talking about. These texts all suggest that an aspect of our inheritance, what comes to us by our union with Christ, is a share in some powerful way in the administration of his kingdom. Now it's really fascinating because, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is horrified that Christians are going to court against one another. Like, you ran over my mailbox and I'm suing you in a small claims court because you won't pay for my mailbox and so we're going to go there and I'm going to get my thing and Judge Wapner and you and me, you know, and we're going to have our little thing going or whoever the judges are on TV these days. It shows you how old I am. And uh, that was going on with people in the church. But Paul was just like, wait a minute, a Christian should never, ever, ever sue another Christian in a court run by pagans. Who are we as God's people to be letting pagans Make determinations for our lives. And the church, he says, is the place for conflict resolution. The church is the place for making judgments, for rendering decisions. And the basis for the church doing that now is that we will be doing that in the future. And he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And the world is judged... And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? And that's all he says about it. And you're sitting there going, tell us more, tell us more. What do you mean? Look, I don't know where the idea comes from that our life in heaven is going to be boring. Nothing about it will be boring. In fact, all the virtues and wisdom that you develop and acquire in this life will be of use there as you sit in judgment on others. 
So be faithful in the school of life. <coughs> Learn both wisdom and justice and mercy. Because those things, those attributes and those qualities, you're actually going to be exercising in some other place at some other time. Tell us more. I don't know any more than that. That's what the book says. Prepare yourself. So let the Muslim have all the sensual pleasures and, and dark-eyed virgins in his paradise. We will have the king's work to do when we get there. So be ready. And folks, you know, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then Paul adds at the end of that verse, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. As it was for the Lord Jesus, the path to glory may well be a path of suffering. So what we need to learn most, we often learn in difficulties and conflicts and illnesses and just sorrows and heartaches, in this world. Suffering is like a forge on which very strong things are hammered out and made for the future. We put a lot of effort into avoiding sorrow or running away from it in this life. But at times, when clearly it is what God has ordained from us, we must learn discipleship in those situations and faithfulness and trust and love. Because, you know, in situations like that, that's where the real priorities start to surface, like Donna was sharing earlier about things being sort of like stripped away, you know, and having just the, the key realities there. Faith grows. Love is given its greatest opportunities in times of conflict and difficulty and suffering. Suffering helps make us like Christ because Christ suffered. You know the old sports adage, no pain, no gain. Well, spiritually, no sorrow, no glory. It really is that way. The New Testament Christians could quite suddenly have found themselves homeless in a matter of any time. It was an imminent situation. They could have been driven out of their homes, been on the run, running for their lives, driven out of their communities. At any minute... These people that lived in the first century could lose everything they have for Christ. And they were willing to do that. Why were they willing to do that? Because they knew, they knew that something better was in store for them. And so it wasn't the end of the world. And even if it was the end of the world, there's another world coming. We are terrified that our friends won't think us cool if we affirm Christ too strongly. Or the guys at the office won't include us in all of their doings if we're too godly. That is a spirit of fear. That is cowardice. And that's what he's talking about in verse 15. We have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Because that's, that's where... The world is. We're so worried about what people are going to think about me. You know, true liberty and freedom 
is to be honest about who you are and what you believe and what your values are without concern about the consequences. And true satisfaction, to tell you the truth, is being true to Dad, our heavenly Dad. Standing up for our family, not pridefully, but with a love and a humility that our Lord Jesus showed us a way to do that. Two even very wicked people. You know, if you read Luke's Gospel very carefully, it was really right when they were nailing Jesus' hands and feet to the boards that he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Great and magnificent things lie ahead for every overcomer, every true child of God. So live up to that future now. It'll actually benefit you then. Well, we'll look more at suffering next week because Paul has more to share about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God this morning. And Lord, even as we approach the table, a meal in the ancient world always meant fellowship. And as Jesus chose us to celebrate communion together, we remember and we fellowship with you through his word. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.